Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. The following Table Podcast is adapted from a cultural engagement chapel that was filmed earlier. The title of the chapel was Doctor Who Meets Moses. It's a discussion of the question of does God condone violence in the Old Testament and the nature of Old Testament ethics with regard to violence. Some of the illustrations involve sexual abuse of women, which is handled uh, rather uh, in terms of its principles in the chapel. And we wanted to make clear before broadcasting this that sexual abuse is a serious issue from a biblical point of view and needs to be discussed with sensitivity. Those who have been abused sometimes find this particular conversation difficult to work through, and that's completely understandable. Our hope is is that in focusing on the principle of what's involved in the Old Testament, that the lesson of that discussion will not be missed in light of issues tied to sexual abuse, and to urge people to take sexual abuse seriously in the church, and that those who are victims should also be taken seriously for what it is that they have been through. And so we ask you to watch this particular show with that in mind. So let me turn to the topic. We're actually going to be dealing with three separate areas simultaneously, okay, which is a challenge. And then Gordon's slides are a challenge in and of themselves, so we're, <laughs> so we're up against it. Um, but the first is we're going to be dealing with the cultural context of ancient texts um, and the issue of the progress of revelation, how to handle texts that are set in a particular context but that raise questions for modern people because of the context in which they find themselves. The second thing that we're dealing with is we are dealing with skeptical challenges of certain kinds of texts, and we're going to pick one example that is particularly challenging by the way some people use it to try and discredit the Bible. And then the third thing that we're going to do, just because two is too easy, um, is we're going to be dealing with a serious particular issue in the example that we have, and that is the reality of violence against women in the ancient world and God's concern that his people rise above the pagan culture by treating women in general better. So that's, that sets the stage for what we're going to do. As you can tell, my um, guest of honor today is Gordon Johnson, who's, uh, uh, who teaches in Old Testament. And Gordon, let's go. Let's go. Okay. So we're, the title of our talk today is Doctor Who Meets Moses. Um, subtitle, A Regulation in the Mosaic Torah that Modern Culture uh, Finds Shocking. Um, so mainstream scholarship and mainstream culture often claims that the Mosaic Torah, specifically in Yahweh in general, is a moral monster. Uh, they will often look at the Old Testament and see some of the things that uh, God has portrayed as doing or some of the case laws in the Mosaic Torah and raise questions. Uh, so Eric Sieber, in his book, The Violence of Scripture, subtitled Overcoming the Old Testament's Troubling Legacy, says this, Rather than condoning violence against women, several Old Testament texts actually condone it. While some might dismiss these laws as relics from the distant past, their violent ideology lingers on and continues to make itself felt even today. So Siebert's uh, not the only one uh, in mainstream culture that's making this claim. But uh, he really epitomizes uh, this, particularly texts that 
appear to be condoning violence against women. So the text that we're going to focus on in particular, kind of our test case, is to ask the question, is Siebert's, is Siebert's claim true? Does the Old Testament condone violence? Does it promote violence against women? Or is it actually countercultural, calling Israel to rise above and beyond the ancient culture and to treat women with respect and dignity and kindness uh, and to show compassion where the ancient culture was showing violence? So the text we're looking at is Deuteronomy 21, 10 to 14. It's a text that uh, often raises questions in mainstream culture. Uh, and we want to be able to engage it. This is a case law reg regulating the Israelite warrior who captures a foreign woman and claims her as his share of the spoils of war and forces her to become his wife. So that right away raises questions. What in the world is going on? Here's the case law. Uh, it says, when you go to war and Yahweh your God gives, you, gives your enemies into your hand and you take captives, if you see among them an attractive woman whom you desire, you shall take her as your wife. You should bring her into your house, and she shall shave her head, trim her nails, discard the clothing she was wearing when she was captured, and lament for her father and mother for a full month. After that, you may have sexual relations with her. You'll become her husband, and she'll become your wife. However, if she does not please you, you must let her go free wherever she wants to go. You may not sell her as a slave, you may not exploit her since you've already humiliated her. So the point of this passage is, is that this woman is going to be in mourning, right? Right. She's not looking her best no. um, because of the mourning that has that has um, been. Uh, she's been given the space to have from losing right. her family. Well, and on top of that, she's been uh, her. Uh, she's been a captive of war. Mm -hmm. uh, she is. Uh, uh, with no other options, she's being claimed by an Israelite warrior as his wife uh, and really not given any opportunity to say no to the situation. So she's not probably not a very happy camper Camper in okay. this situation. All right. So here are some features in Deuteronomy, as far as Daryl was trying to tease out, some features in Deuteronomy 21 that modern mainstream readers find troubling. Uh, first of all, divinely sanctioned military siege of non-Canaanite cities. Conquered citizens treated as spoils of war and property of victors. Overemphasis on the physical beauty of foreign women. Forced marriage of captive women to Israelite warriors. Uh, captive women only given 30 days to mourn the loss of their family. Captive women not given the right to refuse marital sex and the right to divorce for any reason was a prerogative of the man alone. That's, that's typically how this lands uh, on modern mainstream readers. Okay? Now, to epitomize this, there's, we, we've just celebrated in chapel not too long ago that Thomas Nelson is publishing the Net Bible. That's right. Which is very annotated. That's right. Um, there is another annotated Bible out there on the market that most of us probably don't have. It's the Skeptics Annotated Bible. Uh, this was published in the early 2000s, and they uh, are raising uh, all sorts of questions about things in the Bible. Uh, they award, they've got a rating system, they award four Rotten Tomatoes <laughs> to Deuteronomy 21. Uh, from the bottom up, uh, they accuse it of promoting imperialistic war, crimes against humanity, uh, social injustice against ethnic minorities, uh, it's promoting an oppressive patriarchal power structure, and the one that we're focusing on today is, does it actually promote misogynistic attitudes toward women? But that's, that's their read on this text. And so they're going to argue that this, that this kind of text like this makes God a moral monster. 
So here's how they are reading the text. This is, this is the cliff notes in the skeptics annotated Bible. So this is the culture in which we find ourselves and this is how they, how, how biblical texts like this hit them. They're going to argue, the skeptics annotated Bible argues that Deuteronomy 21 functioned as a how-to manual teaching lusty young warriors how to sexually exploit foreign women. Uh, that it gave the Israelite warrior permission to capture a beautiful foreign woman and force her to become his wife. Said that the Israelite man only needed to give her 30 days to mourn her parents, whom they argue he had killed, before having sex with her, and offered instructions on how the Israelite could get rid of her if it turned out he didn't want to be married to her after all. Sounds like a typical pastoral problem. <laughs> yeah. So you realize why we, this is a passage that we need to be able to deal with this. Uh, now, uh, here's what we think is happening. Uh, mainstream culture typically argues that the Mosaic Torah, they're arguing that it's shockingly regressive. But they do this because, in our evaluation, they're misreading the Mosaic regulations apart from the cultural context. They're not understanding the culture in which Moses was writing. They're not understanding the culture in which Yahweh was bringing Israel out of. What's happening is they're flattening out the reading. Uh, if you will, they're reading the letter of the law. They're reading the words on the page. But they, it's, the page is seemingly frozen in time and they don't understand the culture in which Yahweh, in which this text was. If you will, they're importing our culture upon it. And in their mind, our culture is a lot more progressive and the Bible is regressive with really not understanding the cultural context. So what we want to do is we want to see if we can maybe take a trip back into time and understand the culture into which Moses is writing so we can see that the Bible's not being regressive. Moses and Yahweh is being progressive in light of the culture. When we understand what was actually happening in that culture, we realize how revolutionary what Moses was doing in its context. So, Daryl, how are we going to do this? We're going to do this by um, time traveling like Doctor Who. And we're going to ask the question, if Doctor Who had showed up in the time of Moses, what would, he have what would he have seen had he looked around him before he looked at this law? Okay, so I would do the music in the background, but I am musically challenged, and so that's not happening. So we're trying to do cultural engagement. One of the things we're trying to do is to teach the unknown the light of the known. So if you don't know, if you don't know Doctor Who, who Doctor Who is, just think time traveler, okay? So if we were to send Doctor Who back in time, would Doctor Who suffer cultural shock or would he understand the spirit of Torah? I think most modern readers today, contemporary readers in our culture, uh, experience uh, shock at the Torah. They don't understand what they're really looking at as cultural shock, what was happening in the culture. So a couple things about Mosaic Torah that are important to understand, first, that are often misunderstood. Uh, first of all, the Mosaic Torah was not designed and never pretended to establish an ideal society. The prophets envisioned that ideal society to come. That's the progress of Revelation piece. Progress of Revelation. Secondly, the Mosaic Torah focused on regulating specific legal matters and social injustices that were problems in the world in which Israel lived. So it's dealing with the muck and the mire and the problems that existed trying to remedy the problems. It did not exhaustively address all the features in ancient Eastern culture. It addressed certain issues, but did not challenge other deeply ensconced features that in the progress of Revelation, God would begin to make further steps. 
So although the Mosaic Torah was God's first word about moral ethics and social justice, it was certainly not his last word. It, it pointed forward in the right direction on the long path toward the ideal society that the prophets envisioned in a progressively revealed ethic. So it's the first word, but not the last word, but that first word really represents a revolution. Okay, so that lays the premise. So what are the details? Okay, so the details. We have to understand what the culture was. Deuteronomy 21 needs to be read against the culture that modern readers often don't appreciate. In ancient Near Eastern culture, imperialistic conquest of foreign nations was viewed as a valid way to expand your borders and to enrich the nation. Victorious warriors also believed it was their right in the ancient world to loot and plunder a fallen city, to enslave, uh, to, to execute the male combatants, and to enslave the male and female survivors of the citizens. Victorious warriors also believed, and this is really, this is really sad, they also believed it was their right and privilege to rape the captive women, and then to sell the captive women into slavery as concubines, or in some cases to claim them as their own, not as their wives, but as their own concubines. That was the ancient world in which Moses was writing. Now, in the, in the larger patriarchal society that was male-dominated, the men were the ones that arranged the marriage. The women often didn't have a say in it. Uh, but above and beyond this, you have not just arranged marriages, but you have a forced marriage of a captive woman uh, who was in Israel, but in the ancient Near East, captive women were turned into concubines or into slaves. So what's happening, so here's the typical treatment of foreign female captives of slave or captives of war in the ancient Near Eastern world. In the ancient Near Eastern world, warriors typically celebrated victory by ceremoniously executing the male enemy combatants, plundering the possessions of the conquered city, and enforcing the captive women and children into slavery. Beautiful captive women typically suffered additional humilia humiliation. They were subject to gang rape by their male captors. In fact, at one ancient Near Eastern text that actually talked about after they had plundered the city, they would gather up all the women, and at the signal, the men would begin ravishing the women at the signal as part of the celebration. Then the women were sold on the slave market to the highest bidders as concubines or forced to become the male warriors concubine against their will. So in light of that kind of context, Deuteronomy 21 represents a radical break in the cultural, pro in, in cultural practice. The law describes a case when an Israelite warrior after victory sees a beautiful captive woman and is attracted to her. If the Israelite wanted to have sexual relationships with her, Moses says you can't rape her and you can't claim her as a concubine. If you want relations with her, you have to marry her. But before the marriage, the Israelite has to wait for a full 30 days to allow her time to grieve her family and to give the Israelite warrior time to think about what he was doing. Once he consummated the marriage then, she became his wife, full-fledged wife, not a concubine, full-fledged wife with all the rights of a native Israelite wife. And later, if he decided he didn't want to be married to her for whatever reason, Mosaic law allowed for divorce in certain situations, he was not allowed to sell her as a concubine. But he had to grant her freedom to go wherever she wanted. 
That's a radical break in the culture. Okay. Okay. So that's. <laughs> <laughs> I'm turning to you, well, so I don't do all the talking. That's exactly right. Well, it certainly uh, it certainly is a significant difference, and it certainly takes the relationships in all kinds of different directions than where the culture was taking that's it. That's right. So it's moving us in a direction, but in the midst of moving it in a direction, uh, we still have other issues, moral issues, when we think about the Bible as a whole, as right. a canon. Right. So that's where we're going next. Right. So there's also some features. Let's see. If we'll go Let's go to the next slide. Yeah. Good looks like. So it, an important, we won't go into all the details, but Deuteronomy 21 represents the only, it represents the first and only law in the ancient East that actually, rel, uh, actually regulated battlefield conduct. In the ancient East, there were no laws regulating battlefield. This is the first law in the ancient Near East regulating what happens on the battlefield. Ancient Near Eastern law prohibited and punished rape in society, but those laws did not extend to the battlefield. Moses, for the first time in ancient Near Eastern history, is extending prohibition of rape to the battlefield. Ancient Near East, the warriors were allowed to do anything they wanted to. So this is the first and only law in the ancient Near East actually regulating this. So it's not regressive, it's what? In its culture? Program. It's very progressive. Now, it's not where we would ultimately like it to be today, but, but it was a huge step in the right direction back in its own day. Now, a couple of features. Uh, there's five or six features that represent remedies to the ancient Near East. First of all, the, re the regulation function is a re as a re restraint against the moral weakness of warriors. Uh, in the ancient Near East, warriors would, if they saw a beautiful captive woman, they would rape them. Moses says no. If you want to have a relationship with her, you're going to have to marry her. So it effectively, it takes the whole scenario out of the battlefield and puts it into the home. He's going to have to marry her. Secondly, it acknowledges the captive woman's personal grief. In the ancient Near East, they wouldn't marry the woman. They would sell the woman or make her the concubine. Any kind of grief, they, they didn't care about the grief. They didn't care about the collateral cost to the woman. Moses says, at the very least, you give her 30 days. You've got to give her 30 days to mourn, which was the typical time in the ancient Near East that you would have in the ritual mourning. So you have to allow her the customary time of mourning uh, in order to, to uh, 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 mourn the grief, as well as for the Israelite to think about what he's doing. Um, there's also relaxation of ritual regulations out of compassion for the woman. One of the things that says that she's allowed to do is to trim her hair, to trim her nails and to wear, if you will, sackcloth and ashes. Those kind of ritual mourning customs, uh, trimming, uh, 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 shaving your head and trimming their nails, those were the customs in the ancient Near East for, for mourning the dead or mourning the lost. Deuteronomy said the Israelites were not allowed to do that themselves. But out of respect for this woman who's already suffered this loss, these were part of the ritual mourning customs in her culture Moses is relaxing, Yahweh is relaxing the regulations that were permitted for Israel, but allowing the woman for the sake, humanitarian sake, for her own interest and for her own compassion. It's bending over backwards to show compassion to her because she's already suffered so much loss. Fourth, one month waiting period for the moral instruction of the Israelite. The rabbis argued that not only was the one month given for the, for the woman out of compassion to her, 
for the, the typical amount of time to mourn her loss. It was also to give the Israelite time to think about what he's doing. One would think that forcing a captive foreign woman to become your wife is probably not the best foundation for a happy home. And as the Israelite is, is looking at this grieving, weeping, bald woman and starting to see her grief, she would become not an object of his desires. What would she become? A full-fledged person in his eyes and it would force him to realize the collateral damage that was being done, even in the case of legitimate warfare. People suffer. At the very least, it would give him compassion to understand who she is and meet her as an individual, as a person. Number five, the captive woman was also be, would become a full-fledged wife, not a concubine. He's got to marry her, and she would become his wife. In the ancient Near East, she's a concubine with no rights. In Israel, she's going to have to be your wife. And with that is all the rights and all the, all the, all the uh, privileges and rights of a, of a wife. And finally, if he then decides at the end of the day, for whatever reason he doesn't want to be married to her, and the Mosaic Law allowed certain exceptions for divorce, he can't sell her as a concubine. Rather, he's got to grant her her full freedom. If you will, she actually comes out better in the end than somebody who had been a captive in this situation. And the reason being, he says, because you've already humiliated her. So she wouldn't be subject to the kind of forced labor that somebody else might have. And yet this doesn't address every situation. No, it doesn't. So, but that's, if we put this law in its cultural context, this is where it's sitting. This is where it's sitting. Mm -hmm. It's much, much better than what was happening throughout the rest of the ancient East. For sure. Revolutionary. There's, there's, there's ethics that are being taught. So, yet, so the point is, though, yet this law did not address several features of ancient Near Eastern culture. Uh, and I need to go back okay. at this point so I can go, see this. Let, okay. me, let me go back. Here we go. Um, the, the idea that sexual attraction alone was an adequate basis for marriage is not there. It just says, if you see an attractive woman. Okay? So it didn't, address, it didn't give advice to the Israelite to get to know her before marrying her. Now, the rest of the Bible is pointing in that direction. Secondly, the idea that the man had the right to take a wife, take a woman and his wife, or the right of the warrior to force a captive woman to become his wife. It's going above and beyond the culture. You force, they would force to be a concubine, but it doesn't address the patriarchal culture in which we actually have a man takes a wife. Third, the idea that a captive woman could adequately grieve within one month. I can't imagine anybody ever getting over the loss of family in a month. And yet, it's at least allowing that, which in the ancient East, they didn't even allow that. Fourth, the idea that marriage was consummated simply by sexual initiative by the man rather than by mutual concept of both, of both partners. That's not on the radar screen yet. And the idea, at least in this law, in the idea that a man alone had the right to divorce a wife for any reason, a right that it didn't also extend to the wife, that's not there yet. Now, it's, it's a lot better than was going on in the rest of the ancient Near East. So Deuteronomy 21, although it doesn't get us to the end of the journey, to the end of the path, it's a significant step forward. It's the first step in the right direction on a long path of a progressive revealed ethic. The prophets will envision a better society to come. If you will, rather than the nations attacking one another, 
to extend their boundaries and enrich their wealth. The prophets foresaw the day when the swords would be turned into plowshares. You're not going to be attacking nations, other cities, anyway in the future. God's going to bring about a time of peace. Rather than women being subjected to arranged marriages or captive women forced uh, marriages, the Hebrew poets envisioned a day in which women would be given the right to say no and would have the prerogative to choose whom they would want to marry. Even Song of Songs at the end of the day goes in that direction where the female voice, the woman says, my vineyard is mine to give to whomever I want. And rather than a society in which of, of both citizens and slaves, the prophets foresaw a day in which the woman, uh, when God would pour out the spirit upon all people, not just free but slaves, not just Jews but Gentiles, upon all people, and there would be servants to be sure, but everyone would be fellow servants of Yahweh. So as scripture progressively moves forward toward the ideal, the Spirit has helped us understand in the meantime that forcing a captive woman to marry a captor that's been taken from parents is probably not a good foundation for marriage. <laughs> that sexual attraction alone is not an adequate basis for marriage. That a man doesn't have the right to take a wife, but that any marriage must be by mutual consent. And that marriage is not consummated simply by the sexual initiative by the man, but by equal partners entering into a covenant by mutual consent. So this idea that Deuteronomy 21 represents God as a moral monster, that God's a moral monster, Deuteronomy 21 is regressive, that's, that, that's the way the culture, our culture will read it if they're flattening everything out. We think it's better, though, to understand Deuteronomy 21 in light of its own culture, that Yahweh is calling His people to take the first step on a long path in the right direction and rising above the culture by showing kindness, compassion, consideration, and granting women all equal rights, not exploiting them and not showing violence to them. So hopefully, if we sent Dr. Who back, hopefully he would now understand not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of the Torah. And you're done. And we're done. That was amazing. That was amazing. You were, <laughs> you were afraid, weren't you? Yeah, well, it wasn't that I was afraid. I'm just letting you get through the uh, mass of material <laughs> yes. that you presented. Well, we laid it all out. We have to get the context we've right. we some time now for you. Yeah, so let's talk about this hermeneutically for a little bit, and then we'll turn to the student questions. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. Um, 
So in pulling this all together, what's being said here is, is that when you see a, a law like this, and the initial reaction is, this doesn't fit. And we've had this discussion before. I think I had Bob Chisholm come and do a cultural engagement chapel on the whole issue of the, the uh, conquest and what people say about that. So this is like that discussion, except just in a different area. Yes. Um, and, uh, and, and so part of it is understanding the cultural context of what, of what is going on. And that one, part of the cultural context was, you have a society that is um, sacrificing children without blinking an eye, et cetera. The, the ethical standard of the society has descended to an extremely low level. Uh, there was no so, law in Canaan. And so God, God judges that society and wants it eradicated. Um, here the, the picture is of, um, of, an, of, an, of a war zone that has no rules and no laws. And in the ancient East, the way you extend your influence is by just conquering and crushing your enemies. So it's an exercise of raw power. Yeah. Um, and in the midst of the exercise of the raw power, um, we get abuse. And this is an attempt to correct that abuse, to limit it, and to some, and to some degree to re reframe it. That's right. And Israel's going out to battle, but unlike the rest of the ancient Near East, there's laws of engagement. And one of the laws of engagement earlier in Deuteronomy 21 is you've got to give the city terms of surrender. You don't just crush the city. You give them terms of surrender. And then they can get folded into Israelite society, an opportunity to come to faith in Yahweh. Okay, so, that, so that's the one element, is placing the text in its cultural context. The other thing that we're introducing here is a concept, and this is a canonical concept, yes. I want to be clear. It's a canonical concept, is, is that as you move through the canon, you see God continuing to deal with the areas that, when we read this, this initial law, seem not to be addressed. And he fills those, fills, fills those areas up with more um, ethical teaching. I don't know quite how else to say it. With more ethical teaching as we move through the Scripture. And he's also got our eye on something we still have our eye on today, right. which, is, which is when righteousness comes totally to the earth, when uh, Christ comes back and establishes God's rule across all the earth. So we aren't in the ideal situation right. yet either. That's right. And so the, the ethical ideal is what God ultimately wants to drive us toward with that kingdom ethic. And it's important to understand the law itself was not primarily designed to reveal the ethic. The law was designed to deal with the problems. So the eschatological ethic That's you right. mean. Yeah. That's right. So yeah. here's, here's the ultimate ethic in mind. Right. The law was not giving the ideal. Mm -hmm. The law was dealing with the problems in society. So the law was dealing with abuses, just like our laws today. They're designed to deal with the problems that are down here, rather than pointing, they, they point toward the ideal, but they're not there yet. So, so, the, so to put the two pieces together, it's important to understand what the original cultural context is and what the problem is that's being dealt with and what the backdrop to that problem is and what the nature of the corrections are, that's if right. I can say it that way. And then the second thing to be aware of is the movement within the canon. I, I'm saying this strongly because that's yes. the point. The movement within the canon that reveals uh, uh, a movement with regard to addressing certain areas that's pulling you in a certain ethical direction that's as right. it moves as it moves along. So that, for example, by the time we get to the New Testament, we've got exhortations about 
monogamous marriage that we didn't have in the That's Old right. Testament. Uh, and, and so dealing with that issue and that problem, which sometimes also comes up, uh, is a part of understanding this construct that we're talking about that is, is one way to, to deal with this issue. And the thing that we're appealing to is to be careful not to read the Bible flat, um, to read it in such a way that you treat a proverb, for example, that is about a generalized truth as if it were an absolute promise that takes place every time. It's, it's getting your classifications of what the Bible is doing correct because the Bible is doing different things in different places. That's right. And this is God's first word, it's not his last word. And it was not designed, this law was not designed to simply give the ultimate ideal. It was designed to remedy problems that were there that they were encountering. Now, let's be honest, this is not an easy conversation. Not an easy conversation. No, and uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a challenging feature of Scripture. And certainly in the context of our culture, uh, it takes a lot of work and understanding about the Bible in order to, to get people to even think about um, this in these kinds of ways. But it's important for us to have because otherwise we're not going to have good viable responses when people say, is this, is this your God? Right. And I sometimes say that when you're engaging with someone who is coming at, at the Bible from a different perspective than you are, that your first assignment is to give them what I call pause. Um, that um, just to have them think about what actually is going on and, and to give them pause. Uh, Greg Kunkel, who does apologetics, speaks about putting a rock in their shoe. You know how a rock is very irritating when it just kind of hangs there and you're moving around and you keep you try and shake it to get it in the right place so that your foot doesn't step on it, etc. It's just a little irritant. And, and the irritant is to, to have them consider the possibility there's another way to think about this than the way they're thinking about it. And to put that out on the table for discussion uh, is, is one way to begin to deal with the mindset that is that says, well, this is just outrageous. And we've tried to do that through the image of let's go back in time mm -hmm. and understand that culture and what God's actually doing within that culture. Okay, let me turn to some of the questions now that have been uh, been. Uh, 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 we're, we've been corrected on how we've used Doctor Who. Um, technically, his name is the Doctor, not Doctor Who. So we didn't need to explain the show to that person, correct? I actually, I actually got an email from a friend that I was having vetting it, and he said, you got to call him the Doctor. And so I was not culturally engaged. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right. So uh, correction, duly accepted. We move on. Um, uh, why simply improve the culture as opposed to go all the way in elevating and protecting women? It's a That's a question. great question. It's a good question. That's a great question. Yeah. Um, I, I think that is a very, very good and a fair question. And uh, I do think that, um, that what you see in cultural engagement, I'll take this one on. I do think that what you see oftentimes in cultural engagement when there is a social problem is that when you try to go somewhere very fast, you don't bring a lot of people with you. Um, uh, I think we see that even today. And so it may be that it is the better path of wisdom to work this a step at a time as opposed to try and do it all at once. Uh, at least that would be, I think, my take on, on how to think about this kind of a question. And I think even if we think about our own country, the Declaration of Independence articulated the ideal. 
all men are created equal. Okay, that's the ideal. That's the principles our nation was founded upon. A decade later, when the Bill of Rights were put together, the problem was we had northern states and southern states. There was slavery in the southern states and not in the northern states. And they wanted, to, they wanted to keep the union together. So they had a compromise. And it was a regrettable compromise. But it was a compromise that they made because they said, if we insist on no slave states, the union will be fragmented and will never have the opportunity to eventually abolish slavery. So what they did is they did not permit slavery on a federal level. They allowed it to continue for each state to continue, but with the, with the declaration in mind and the hope that eventually future generations would take a long look at the declaration and the ethic there would eventually begin to penetrate. Thomas Jefferson himself said it toward the end of his, career, end of his life, he was saddened that the, that the second generation, it still had not dawned upon them what the declaration all men are created equal meant. And he felt as that eventually that ethic would eventually penetrate and eventually it did. But it was a long journey, wasn't it? Yeah, and in fact, Jefferson didn't even consistently apply it himself. Well, actually, <laughs> here's, the, here's the irony. Here's the irony. Jefferson, Jefferson inherited the slaves from his father. His father was a slave owner. He, and he didn't buy the, any slaves. He inherited the slaves. And in that day and age, you were not permitted to free slaves. That was a state law. He wasn't permitted to free them. So even that's more complicated. It was a lot more complicated than we often make it out to be. Okay. Uh, here's another question. I think it's a, this is an interesting one. So if I accept the progressive revelation stance, that sounds like a premise that someone has some questions about. Um, what then is the purpose of these problematic texts now? Are they merely to establish background for later revelation in the prophets, New Testament, and church history? That's a great question. That's a good question. Yeah, I think what it does is it helps us to appreciate the fact, indeed, that there is progress revelation. We accept as, as, uh, as dogma, I think, that there's progressive revelation of Messiah. I think we accept that there's progressive revelation of eschatological prophecy. Uh, could it also be that there's progressive revelation of God's ethic? Uh, in Genesis, Yahweh calls Abraham to teach his descendants to walk in the way of Yahweh by doing mishpat and sadaqah, moral righteousness, social justice. What that looks like doesn't get teased out until later revelation. So I think there is progressive revelation even of God's moral ethic, that he's gradually taking us in that direction. Okay, here's the next one. Do we simply pick and choose what applies to cultural progress? How do we not get lost in cultural ambiguity with this model today? That's a great question. Too. Well, yeah, yeah. Our, our students don't mess around. No, they don't. <laughs> <laughs> Is this all the same person or this? Uh, uh, probably not. Probably not. Okay. Um, so uh, I think the question becomes: How do we view? How do we assess? And this is actually an important skill. How do we assess the discernment that is required as a Christian thinks through what is an alternate lifestyle and ethic that the Bible presents in relationship to the world around them? And there are lots of places for discernment today, in case you've been missing the, the news. 
um, the, uh, the way in which Christians are called to live in contrast to what the culture accepts, don't they don't even blink at anymore, um, is, is a way of thinking about this. And the reason we've stressed the idea this is a canonical model is, don't hear us to be saying this, that the scripture is moving in a certain direction and then we have the freedom to move in additional directions beyond what the scripture is saying. That's not what we're saying when we're talking about a progressive revelatory ethic. What we're saying is, is that the canon, by the time we get to the New Testament, is giving us the parameters by which we should function as the people of God. And in the midst of that, the contrast of what that ethic is in relationship to what goes on currently in our culture is, and I don't think you need a PhD to figure this out, is a little bit different. That... Uh, the way we're called to live in terms of sexuality, the way we're called to live in terms of how we interact with gender, the way in which um, the New Testament even reconfigures legitimate categories of power and rank by the way we're supposed to live in the midst of those structures stands out in contrast to our culture as opposed to being aligned with it. And, and that's one of the ways that we show even in the midst of, I mean, the, the classic example of this in the New Testament is Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. The Bible doesn't blink in using a word like submission. Our culture blinks at the word of submission. But the Bible also doesn't blink at the idea that the husband, in fact, it spends more time on this, is to love the wife and then goes through an array of descriptions about what that love looks like that so reconfigures the way power is normally seen in the Greco-Roman world that basically what has happened is, is that you've gotten a reconfiguration of the relationship as a result. See, we take it for granted that husbands are supposed to love their wives. Greco-Roman world, that was kind of a shocking concept. Yeah, uh, and so, so this idea of redefining, the idea of, just look at one of the core claims about disciples. Who is the greatest disciple according to Jesus. What kind of role do they take? A servant. Well, actually, you've translated it pretty nicely. Okay. You put it in a Western, in a Western comfy bed. Okay. It's not a servant. What is it? It's a slave. Okay. That's a reversal. That's an ethical reversal the culture does not understand. It takes the Spirit of God to get there which is why the gospel is also important because you don't bring people to this place without the work of the Spirit of God and without doing a little bit of evangelism and people being drawn into the faith, etc. which is why we have the Great Commission, which makes sense. So, so this kind, uh, this, isn't, this isn't a matter of picking and choosing and applying cultural progress. This is, a, this is about the ability to develop uh, an understanding of Scripture and the ability to discern in the midst of the way Scripture presents what the Christian calling is, that you actually have a sense of how Christians are to live that is different and distinct from what's going on around them. And I dare say that one of the problems that we have in the church today is that our churches are um, too aligned with what goes on in the culture, generally speaking, and not aligned enough with the distinctiveness of Christian practices in a variety of these areas as conceived by the Bible, and that undercuts our testimony. 
Um, when we are inconsistent about what we espouse in the public square and what we support in the public square, and that doesn't align with what we ethically say is the core of our character, then we undercut our very ability to issue a moral challenge to the society we're called to challenge about living faithfully before God. See, and, and when Daryl's talking about we're getting this from the canon, we're not back reading from our culture into the, into the Bible, but think about the two layers. In, in Deuteronomy 21, it talks about when you go out to battle, and this happens. Micah in the progress of Revelation and Isaiah says there's going to come a day in which you're no longer going to have to go out to battle. You're going to be pounding your swords into plowshares. So that's the direction. In the current day and age, the world in which we live, we're going to have to protect ourselves and, and do these things for safe and security because we live in a horrendous world. But there's coming a day and that's where we're ultimately wanting to go. So that's, that's a canonical move within itself, isn't it? In the progress. Well, as I said, this is not an easy topic. Uh, it is one that demands reflection. It's not something that's solved by 30 minutes and two commercial breaks. Um, but it is worth discussing. And I think having an awareness hermeneutically of what, uh, of what the Bible is and how it can function actually helps us understand some of these texts that frankly, when we initially read them coming out of the 21st century, out of the West, we go, what was going on there? Well, hopefully you have a little sense of that was going on there. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to be together and to reflect on your word and to take what probably for many people is an obscure text and think about how it really works, what you were doing with it and why, and uh, the call underneath it that is made to us as men and women of God to live in a way that honors you, that reflects the distinctiveness of the way you call us to live, and a distinctiveness that shines out because it is in contrast to what's going on around us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth, love well.